Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Welcome to day number eight. We are with a group walking from outside Jaffa Gate, Herod's Palace the Protorium, which we learned about, and walking towards the Holy Sepulchre Church. And all the group are seated on the steps facing the Holy Sepulchre Church, where Jesus was buried and crucified. Today, we'll try to talk about the deep inner pain that Jesus had during his walk from Herod's palace, the Protorium, all the way through the Via Dolorosa, all the way to the cross. And we'll try to understand how he endured all of that pain inside, how he handled the reproach of the Roman soldiers. And we're going to try to imagine together what he was thinking and what was running in his mind and in his heart in those moments of complete injustice and humiliation. So we will continue reading from where we left last podcast from Matthew 27 verse 27 till 44. And I will focus on the first five verses. The soldiers mock Jesus. 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Verse 30. They spit on him, and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. The last verse, 31. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As a reminder and what we learned earlier, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, that came to a conclusion that Jesus was worthy of death, according to the Jewish law. But we have to understand that the Jews were not allowed to put anybody to death because they are under the power and rule of the Roman Empire. So they do not have the power for the final decision. So they brought Jesus to Pilate. And as a reminder, it's early morning, Friday, April the 3rd, 33 AD. Pilate, you have to understand, is guilty because he signs the papers. He is responsible. He may give a show of innocence by washing his hands in water, by saying his innocent blood is on you, was meaningless. But Pilate carries all the responsibility for signing the verdict that brought Jesus for crucifixion. Despite even his wife alerting him not to make this decision, yet the power and responsibility of what to do with Jesus rested with Pilate alone. Saying, I find no fault in him, was not enough. Even for Pilate, looking for a clever solution in releasing a prisoner at Passover like Barnabas, was no solution. Therefore, he could not escape responsibility, and Pilate is forever associated 
with the crime of sending Jesus to the cross. You have to understand that all the power is in the hands of Rome and the hands of the governor of Rome. And we know Pilate ruled from 26 to 36 AD and is proven in history that that was the same period of Jesus coming to the cross and being judged by this governor. And you have to understand inside the governor palace stands the Praetorium. It is like a big courtyard where judgment of criminals, thieves, leader of movements, even zealots, who stands against the Roman control, takes place. The Praetorium is like a Roman courthouse, open in front of the eyes of everyone. This system of judgment continued till the early 20th century in the Middle East, especially during the Turkish control. The Basha, or the Beik, in Turkish language, is a name of a prominent, strong leader or a governor, or a ruler. This ruler of a village will always have such a praetorium outside his palace or outside his residence just to carry his judgment in front of the peasants and in front of the eyes of all the people to show how powerful he is and to teach other criminals a lesson. Do not repeat it again. We can say it's like an open court system to carry out the execution of the criminals and the soldiers of the governor will be all over the area to protect the governor personally and to secure his palace and his family. It's very similar when it comes to scripture. Notice in verse 27, they gathered the whole garrison around him. Usually in Rome to carry out an execution they only needed a regular group of four soldiers. They call it a quatronium. That's what is needed. But in Jesus' case, it's different. Look what is written in scripture. Yet they gathered the whole garrison around him. Means the ones who were on duty and the ones who were off duty soldiers. Even the ones that protected personally Pilate was also involved in Jesus' judgment. So many soldiers were present in the courtyard, above the normal number. The soldiers found this whole scene hilarious. For them, it was like a sport. It was like entertainment. Takes away some of their boredom. Something they can do and have fun doing it. Their hearts are hardened. Their intent is to inflict pain to others. This is their harsh life of a Roman soldier. And we have to understand, in the first century, the relationship between Jews and Romans was always tense. And the Jews hated the Romans, and the Roman soldiers even hated the Jews so much. Even the Roman soldiers hated themselves. They knew that they were taking things by force and were very cruel. There was also an old custom in ancient Rome to send out colonies for the purpose of securing new conquests. You have to understand that Rome had no standing army. It is composed of full-time soldiers used to place population of their own citizens when they conquer towns. This is kind of a garrison. So the armies tend to be better equipped, better trained, and better prepared for emergencies, defensive, and particularly hands-on to crucify thieves. They are ready. And you have to understand, a Roman garrison can consist of 600 Roman soldiers. A legion is from 3,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Anyway, there were many revolts in the land during the Roman occupation. They had no respect for the Jewish people. And during any revolt or any riots that took place, or even simply when Jews do not pay taxes, Roman soldiers have orders that they are allowed to enter any Jewish home, collect the money, rape the woman, and even can arrest any of the 
family members that try to defend themselves. More than that, many of the soldiers probably resented being stationed in an outpost such as Jerusalem, far away from their own homes. And the soldiers of the governor were auxiliaries, not Roman legionaries. So they would be recruited from non-Jewish inhabitants of the surrounding area, such as Syria, Lebanon, and even such as Iraq. And so if here they had a chance to mock the Jewish people even more than that by ridiculing the one that was supposedly claiming to be their king, well, they took full advantage of that opportunity. And not only that, Roman soldiers were so cruel. There was no justice. They wanted to express all their anger at the Jewish people and especially at this Jewish king. All the soldiers gathered around wasn't to prevent his escape. Wasn't that they were just thinking he will run away. It wasn't to prevent a hostile crowd from rescuing him. People will be watching him. It wasn't to keep the disciples away from him or his followers or his family or his mother. Simply because he was Jewish and they wanted to humiliate this king in front of everyone. Let us go to verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe in him. They stripped him. When a prisoner was crucified in the first century, they were often nailed to the cross naked simply to increase their humiliation. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet, but his humiliation had begun and he was publicly stripped, which probably they harshly removed his clothing, which would have been suffering in itself. Remember, Jesus has been beaten severely earlier at Pilate's command in scourging the criminal. The norm in the first century is to scourge the criminal after the judgment take place. This is what's known in history. But when we read in the four Gospels related to scourging, it looks like Pilate had ordered the scourging of Jesus prior to his judgment or condemnation. The Roman soldiers has to stretch your arms around the column, then to be tied around it to make your back fully bare and available that you cannot move much when scourging took place, likely with a whip of many cords, that each cord had a little bit of metal on the end or a sharp sheep bones. The Romans believed that 40 lashes, scourges, 40 is the maximum number of lashes required to kill a person and that 39 is the default number for such punishment. Let us go to the Old Testament. Look what is written in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 2 and 3. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. But the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. We've seen that in Deuteronomy 25, Moses' law refers to flogging. The law itself says 40 lashes less one, or 39 lashes. The term was meant to be a biblical one in that 40 lashes are what was determined enough to kill a man according to the Old Testament. And thus 39 lashes was the most you give a man without declaring a penalty of death. This was also the number of lashes Christ received from Pilate and thus it would have been over the law to flog someone more than that. Actually, like the Old Testament said, 39 lashes was more than enough to cause a man to pass out and easily enough 40 to kill him. 
Moses law was usually deemed just for only the most serious crimes that did not carry a death sentence. If the governor in Rome or the commander permits for the 40th lash and the soldier, the Roman soldier, was unable to kill the person in front of him, then that Roman soldier himself is to be put to death. So imagine how much force is behind every lash. The soldier is lashing for his own life. Look what is said in Isaiah 53.5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. His back would have been raw and bloody. And as the blood began to clot, his clothing would have gotten stuck in there. Just removing his clothes would have reopened fresh wounds. And already it was searing with blood. Look at verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The soldiers said, you are a king, we will make you a royalty. Because kings and rulers often wore scarlet, made of purple color fabrics, and were very expensive to present the royalty. So the scarlet robe was intended to mock Jesus more and more. Look what is written, a prophecy in Psalm 89 verses 50 and 51. Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. How I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Let's continue verse 29. They had twisted a crown of thorns. The soldiers said, you are a king, we will make you a crown. They woofed a crown from the branches of a bush, a thorny plant of the Spurge family, by the way, native to Jerusalem and the area of the Judean desert. Kings were crowns, majestic crowns, but not crowns of torture. The specific thorn bush of this region have long, hard, sharp thorns. This was a crown that was cut, pierced, and blooded the head of the king of the Jews. Just they kept humiliating him. That was their own intention. And look in verse 29. A reed in his right hand. Kings hold scepters, but glorious ornamented like King Pharaoh. He had a huge scepter fancy that symbolizes their power and leadership. In their mockery of Jesus, they gave him a scepter, but a thin, weak reed. They wanted to make sure that the crown of thorns was firm on his head, so they kept striking him with the staff on his head. The staff is made, by the way, of acacia wood, also from the Judean desert and native to Jerusalem. So the staff, the scepter, symbolizes the power and authority. And they kept mocking Jesus. Even the scriptures say they bowed the knee before him. Kings are honored. So they offered to mock him more and more by kneeling down to worship this king of the Jews. So much mockery. With the soldiers mocking him, he did not act back, but he had the ability to. Think about that he had the ability to stop his humiliation by the soldiers, even with a blink of his eyes. He could destroy the soldiers completely. But... He chose not. He did not do it. Why he did not do it? Because he was obedient to his father. 
Obedience is so much important. Hail, King of the Jews! They shouted. You know, kings are greeted with royal titles. So in their spite, they mocked Jesus with this title, Hail, King of the Jews. It was meant to humiliate him more and more and more. Verse 30. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now the Roman soldiers shifted from the stage of mockery to the stage of cruelty. They seized the scepter, took off the royal robe, and began to hurl their spit and their fists at the head of Jesus. They spat on him and used the staff, the symbol of his kingly authority, on his head. And this is the worst kind of humiliation, is that they are saying, when someone spit on you, is that they are saying you are nothing. Spitting upon another person, especially onto the face, is a global sign of anger, hatred, disrespect, or contempt. Let me share with you a quick real story. I was once doing the Stations of the Cross, the Via Dolorosa, with a group from South Africa, and two religious Jews approached us, and one of them, in purpose, had made a large spit on the cross that we were carrying. We just had the most uncomfortable, humiliating feeling in the world. The first thing that crosses your mind, why did they do that? It showed me how much anger and hatred they carry inside themselves. However, do not be surprised, till today, this is the routine practice of spitting on Christians, clergymen and women as they walk through the streets of the Via Dolorosa of the old city of Jerusalem. Nothing new in history. Yet, they spat in his face just for the pleasure of doing it. This act of spitting seen as something vulgar. When someone spits on you, you feel the hatred inside your heart. And not only that, it's not that the spit that hurts. It is the feeling that arouses after they spit on you. It even hurts more deeper than you think. It hurts to your core, makes you feel like you are nothing in this world. You are not important. You are despicable and unclean. And back to Jesus. Then the soldiers shouted with the top of their voices, even in mocking tone, Hail, King of the Jews. They made him have the appearance of a king so that they mockingly bowed down to him. You say you are a king? We will bow down to you. But they do it in such a disgusting way. They are moved to express only their hatred. They spit, slap him, and kept beating that thorny crown more inside his head. It would seem that Jesus was not in control at all. But let me explain for you something. Let us go back into the Garden of Gethsemane when he was captured the evening before, on Thursday. Few hours earlier, during midnight, when the soldiers that had gathered to capture him at the Garden of Gethsemane, it's few hours from what's happening, from his scourging, because it's Friday, so he did not have much sleep. And when Jesus saw the army, Jesus said, to them whom you are seeking. Remember that? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Look what Jesus answered. I am he. And they stumbled backwards and fell forwards involuntarily according to the king. Well, he merely spoke those words. Listen again. He said, I am he. In Hebrew, Ani Elohim, which means I am God, which means I am the King. So what the scripture said, they fell forward. They bowed down 
to him. They did not fell backward. The scriptures say they fell forward. They bowed to the king without realizing it. So he is the real king that these Roman soldiers already had bowed to him. Upside down kingdom. Let me go another level. Speaking about the Roman soldiers, in many ways, they are clear representatives of the strengths of the world. Like today, they are the authorities of the world. But in their minds, the position of a king is a position of one who is worshipped and served. So they worshipped him and mockingly served him. For them, it is impossible to comprehend that Jesus is a king. He is the real king. We have to understand and see that Jesus truly was king. Look what is written in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Verse 8. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is a king. Jesus knew that he is a king, but he was a different kind of king than those soldiers knew. Again, for them, a king is that someone have a tremendous power, a great ability in his personality to persuade more crowds because the king is so strong and no one can stand against him because of his powers and the army surrounding him and protecting him. But Jesus is a different kind of king. His kingdom is not of the world like the Romans. His kingdom is spiritual. So what we have to realize, that means that his kingdom is established on the basis of righteousness. This is important. To do what is right in God's sight. One more time. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is not of this earth. It is not by mighty nor by power, but by his spirit. Means it is by doing the right thing in the eyes of God the Father. God sets up the one to be a king. God sets up Jesus to be a king. He established him as a king based on Jesus' obedience. Jesus is doing everything right according to the Father. His kingdom is not of this world. Let us look what is written in Scripture when Jesus interviews with Pilate. We have a small reference in Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, we have more details. Let us read John 18, 33-38, when Pilate asked Jesus a question. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Look what Jesus said in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is the true king. He is truth. It is all about the obedience of God and staying righteous in his eyes. 
We are Rome. We are the only kings. We are the only gods. You serve us. You bow down to us and you worship us only. All this mockery against Jesus, just think about it. There is the physical and there is the internal deep emotional hurt that Jesus suffered with silence, complete silence. In his enduring of all of that, not only God's will have to take place, but think about it, also Jesus' will, his own will, submitting completely to his Father. Just try to think, when we are beaten emotionally, and when we have been mocked and hurted by family members or from the church members, and we cannot do anything about it, when everything we tried failed, we feel helpless, but we have to remember, Jesus endured it all and he was silent. We have to endure it all and to be silent. I learned when I am humiliated and hurt, I do not take matters by my own hands. I leave them to God. And it's not about who is right, who is wrong. It's about being obedient. Keep trusting God, even when you have scars and wounds in this world. We tend to hold things in our own hands. We need to trust the Father and not ourselves. Do not fight for yourselves. God fights for you. Just stay righteous, whatever is the situation. That is the key. Staying righteous and obedient, even in hard situations. Even if you have been betrayed, or your heart have been broken in a relationship, or you lost a loved one, or you were in a court and it was unjust for you, or when a loved one dies, when we have a physical pain, when we hear the word cancer, when we get people mocking us in many situations, these are the moments when you are hurt deeply to your core Remember Jesus. He was obedient. He trusted the Father completely. Trust in God. God will not put Jesus into shame. Jesus trusted the Father to put him in majesty that no one can take away. Jesus knew that soon he would be able to sit at the right hand of the Father and all authority in heavens and earth will be given to him. He was seeing things spiritually. Look at things spiritually, not physically of the world. And it will be revealed that he will be the King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will should bow before him in true adoration, a king forever. We need to have endurance. Because it's not about us. It is about surrendering our hearts and our will to the Father, like Jesus. To learn to have endurance, even if you keep silent about a mocking situation that happened with you, and you did not defend yourself, within time, the truth will be eventually exposed out. When you feel so hurt, do not defend yourself. God will defend for you and on your behalf. There is power in silence and righteousness. The bottom line, do not take matters by your own hands, but leave them in God's hands. This is all part of Jesus' obedience to the Father. It's all about bearing our reproach what we deserved, what we had earned from this ungodly word, he willingly accepted to go to the cross for our own sins. We see Jesus not only allowing of this to happen, but voluntarily accepting the reproach and the humiliation, a complete free act of his own will, out of full obedience for his Father. Remember, Jesus acknowledged the Father in all his ways. He saw the heart of the Father. He saw what was really happening. He saw through it all. He saw God as real. Let us see God 
at the same thing how Jesus looked at the Father and stay righteousness. Just a few hours earlier in the garden, before they came to capture him, and he prayed, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He willingly was going to take that cup, and he is willingly and voluntarily drinking from the reproach of our sins. Again, king and the kingdom that is established on the basis of righteousness. Do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. There is a relationship between being a king and doing what is right. Kings should not compromise. And they should do what is right and just. So if you are in a big position, in a high position, or in a big company, or involved in big projects, always, always choose righteousness for the glory of God and not your own glory. Remember that. Even if it's hard decisions, always do the right thing. And look what is happening today. It's opposite. From the viewpoint of the world, you often, in order to get a position of power, you will become corrupt. Think the way many politicians work today in the United States. They make loads and loads of promises. And any other states or any, any politician in the world, even in Israel, they make so much promises. Promises they are aware they cannot keep. Sometimes they perform acts that are violation to the law even in order for them to be able to get a position of power and to stay in control. No ethics are determined for a man to reach a position of becoming the king. The same way kings acted back in history. Think about Herod the Great. He wanted to be the only king over the land of Palestine. And he killed even his wife and even his own sons because he discovered that they had a plot to take his throne. Think about how all the Israelite kings, remember there was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah stayed obedient. The kingdom of Israel were rebellious and they got split and got the northern kingdom with the ten tribes. They got so unethical the kings, no righteousness about them. Remember King Ahab, one of them. And the kings were so much corrupt, far away from righteousness. Now, you have to remember, righteousness is necessary. But why is righteousness very important? Because righteousness is life is living right in God's eyes. It's essentially very important. Let us go why it's very important. Let us try to understand and imagine what's going on in the mind and the heart of Jesus during the soldiers were mocking him. I think, probably, may I stretch you a little bit, Jesus was thinking about Adam's fall to sin. He was so much focused because he wanted to redeem humanity. And what was going in the mind of Jesus during all this humiliation on the Via Dolorosa, on the way to the cross, was the fall. And these thoughts of Jesus would probably start it in Gethsemane and ended on the top of Golgotha, on the cross, to redeem the fall of humanity. And think about it. Jesus carried all the sins and the hatred of the world on his shoulders. Think about the heaviness of the sins of the world, and not only the heaviness of the cross beam. Imagine with me, if you ever hurted someone or hurted your brother or you hurted your sister or you even hurted someone from the church. Once I hurted my twin brother 
I could not sleep that night because I felt so, so bad. And imagine Jesus carrying all the sins and the hurt of the world on his own shoulders. So the question here, whom do we serve? The world or our spiritual king? Adam made himself king. When we do what we want, when we move by selfish needs, we serve the world. When it's all about us, I want this, I want that, I deserve this, I deserve that. I need to have more possessions. I need to own more things. It's all about me, me, me. Bless me, bless me, bless me even. Self-centered and self-fulfilling desires is serving the world. But thinking in the spirit is serving the King Jesus. My advice, try to kill your flesh. This is what we need to do. To see Christ as a king in every part of our lives and when we fail to sin like adam we are serving ourselves and serving the world listen carefully serving the world means serving the devil the devil came in form of the serpent the serpent got eve eve got adam the devil said now you are all mine in order to establish his kingdom, Jesus have to take those that are under the devil kingdom in the world and bring them into his. This is what was on his mind. He not only had to pay only the penalty of our sins, he had to liberate us from the rule of Satan and bring us into his rule and his kingdom. His kingdom was established on the foundations of doing what is righteous in God's eyes. The bottom line, this means that you can kill your flesh and kill our ego and walk in the spirit under the will of God and not our will. We have to surrender it all, but in order for us to do that and be free, Jesus had to do that for us first. This is why many times when the disciples were arguing, who is the greatest among us in the kingdom? And asking Jesus, can we sit on the right hand side of you? Jesus has to get their attention and he had to say to them, you want to be great in my kingdom? Do you know what is it to be great in my kingdom? In the kingdoms of the world, you get served. You want to know how to be great in my kingdom, you serve, opposite than the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of God, you honor and respect the authority of the Father in every sphere of your life. In the world, to feel great, you have others to serve you. In God's kingdom, to feel great is to serve others. Like Jesus, he served willingly and he served even when the soldiers has no understanding what it meant to be that king. Do not look at the soldiers' attitude. That symbolizes how the world is flowing today. Look at the attitude of Jesus as he endured what was accumulated upon him. He was performing the most royal act of faith. He was being a true king in God's eyes. From the viewpoint of the word and the flesh, he was weak and rejected. But from the viewpoint of the father, it was obedience. The mighty servant doing the father's will and establishing righteousness, giving to us righteousness so that we have the right to be citizens in his kingdom. He endured all the mockery, all the ridicule, and by doing that, giving the Roman soldiers the right to show who they really are and to show what they thought of the king blinded by the lack of faith, giving vent to all of their inner venom that filled their lives, like they were doing what they wanted to do with him. Jesus was not condemning them even, but 
He was saving them from themselves, saving them from their own condemnation. Just think about it. He was complete silence, being mocked, because he knew he's going to save these Roman soldiers. Let us get to another level and read Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What Jesus was doing was allowing himself to be bruised by the heel of the serpent. But in being bruised by the heel of the serpent, that was the way in which he crushed the head of Satan and the work of the devil forever. In other words, he crushed the right of Satan to have rule over you and me. Think about it. Satan does not have the right to your soul. He will tell you, he does, and try to deceive you. Even he will act like he does sometimes when we do what we want to do and when we fail into sin. Look, like we are in that kingdom, the kingdom of the world. It looks like that when we sin. But we are not. Satan tries to deceive us. So we need to exercise our faith in the world of God and see what Jesus did so that in that praetorium where the soldiers revealed all their venom and sin to kill him, Jesus endured so God will raise him for our righteousness. Even if God's way is very hard on us, it is still the right way. Always choose the right way. Choose righteousness. Listen for this personal story that happened with me. And as most of you know, I'm a licensed tour guide, but not many of you know that I'm also a bus driver. And once I like to drive the buses and not to be a guide. And once I had a small group of 14 people in a minibus and it happened I was their bus driver. Because they did not want to hire a guide and they want only to hire a driver. And inside the group, there were a few pastors and when I met them in the airport they introduced themselves and I introduced myself and I said I am a Palestinian Christian driver when I said that sentence they did not like it and as a professional driver I was very nice to them and served them and even told them to have water for free for the entire trip. And I always gave a great service. I kept the bus clean and was ready even before the normal time and early. And I like to serve, this is my nature. And I remember one time on the way going up to Galilee, driving the minibus into some Palestinian territories inside West Bank areas, to my surprise, few members of the group was talking about Palestinians and started to mock them. How they dress, how they are poor, as by saying few judgmental statements about Palestinians. And I heard one of the group members said that the driver he is one of them. I kept quiet and did not make any reaction. Then when we passed through the Jordan Valley up they mentioned more inappropriate and mocking things about the Palestinians, farmers, and how it is all not clean and how these farmers as Palestinians might be terrorists and few were looking at me in their eyes and I still continued to make myself oblivious as if I did not hear anything. Of course, I was hurt a little bit, but I just endured it all. I just wanted to serve, do my job as a driver and not enter into any politics because politics as you know is so much corruption there and politics is like in the world and Jesus himself did not speak anything bad about a Roman soldier Jesus himself was not involved in politics he was very spiritual as we learned and he always respected authority anyway so I continued to serve them with grace 
Then the third day came and one of the group members started like teasing me with his hands physically by pinching me. It was so annoying and I just did not like it at all. But I said nothing. I do not understand why he was using his hands to tease me. Maybe he was so much excited about my service and liked me so much. And he thought it was funny. By the way, it was not funny. It hurted me. On the fourth day, the same attitude continued. I did not defend myself at all. I kept saying in my mind, I am not taking anything personal. Whatever they are doing is reflecting their own character. So I stayed so cool and I think they thought I am a dumb person. Because I kept serving them and happy and smiling despite whatever they were doing to me. And maybe they thought I'm serving them for a reason, because I need their money, or empathy, or because they are a better race than me. But that was not the case. I serve them because I'm a professional driver. And I kept serving them because this is my nature, to do the right thing and do it well. I just kept praying, Lord, forgive them. They do not have any idea that I'm a strong, spirit-filled believer and that I'm very educated and travel the world even more than themselves. And I was enduring it all. And during the seventh day of the tour, there was someone sitting in my right side in the bus when I was driving because there's only one seat to the right of the driver. This is the most comfortable seat. This is why he chose it. I think he was the pastor. And there was a drawer in front of his seat. And he kept where I put all the important papers for the minibus inside that drawer. And I think out of curiosity, the pastor kept playing with the drawer during driving. And by mistake, he opened it and suddenly my tour guide license fell from the drawer down below his seat. It took him a few seconds to find it, to pick it up from the floor, and he grabbed the white plastic tag and read my name and realized that I'm a licensed official tour guide from the Israeli government. I remember I just looked at him and he was embarrassed. And he looked at me and put it back in the drawer gently. And I think later the pastor told all the group members about my license as a tour guide and i think by that time they were ashamed of how they treated me anyway later i felt that their attitude changed a little towards me and became better and they had some respect to me and i understand when people travel they are having fun and they feel relaxed and their personalities rises up because they are outside their comfort zone But believe me, their jokes and the way they made fun of everything was clearly too much ego. They had too much ego. So I tried to endure it all. And because I'm experienced, I passed through so many people and through so many personalities in my life. And still learning. So I continued to be nice to them. And not defending myself at all. And to my surprise, the last day... Someone from the group invited me to a prayer meeting in the evening. I said for sure, and when I came to the meeting, I heard one of them saying, Here comes our Palestinian driver. So I sat down in the meeting with a big smile, and I kept quiet, without saying anything. And the meeting started, and they had some worship songs. They were so much surprised. I knew all of the worship songs and even I was worshiping with them. Then they realized (laughs) I am a strong believer. And in the end, they asked me to pray. I said, I love to pray. And I started to pray. And the moment I finished praying, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so strong, even so tangible. And God showed up and there was a change in the atmosphere and everyone was so much touched by the power of the Spirit and two of the group members and one of them was a pastor came and said forgive us 
We are so sorry. We did not like how we behaved with our attitude. Our attitude was wrong. I hugged them and forgave them. And they learned a lesson not to judge the person in front of them because of his background or because of his position or because he is a driver. You never know what the person in front of you is passing through in his life or what he passed through already. I believe that God has sent them to me to be their driver, to protect them, and to show them how to be humble, and for them to learn a lesson not to judge others. Because everyone needs to be saved. Whatever is your background, a Jew, or a Palestinian, or a Muslim, or even a Christian, you need to be saved by the blood of Christ. Let us go back to scripture and read the verse 31. It's written that they led him away to be crucified. And by the way, the walk, the march to the place of crucifixion, we just walked from the Praetorium, from Jaffa Gates, Herod's Palace location, to the Holy Sepulchre. This is what is written, they led him away to be crucified from the Praetorium to the Golgotha. We just walked that distance. And you have to understand, this distance, this march to the place of crucifixion was a useful proclamation for Rome. It was a good propaganda for Rome because it warned potential troublemakers that this was their fate should they challenge Rome. Normally, a centurion on a horseback led the procession, and a herald, an announcer, shouted the crime of the condemned person. So it was completely a show-off that anyone who stands against Rome, this is what he deserved. So the criminal was led to the scene of crucifixion by as long a route as possible so that as many as possible might see him and take warning from the harsh sight. As Jesus was led away to be crucified, he was, like most victims of crucifixion, forced to carry the wood, the crossbar, that he would hang upon. The victim only carried the crossbar, which weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. When the victim carried the crossbar, he was usually stripped naked and his hands were often tied to the wood. And by the way, I wrote a complete book about the Via Dolorosa in details, which I will not enter right now. And if you like to learn more information about the Via Dolorosa, just go to Amazon and put and write One Friday in Jerusalem. And this is the first book I wrote about the Stations of the Cross and Via Dolorosa and Jesus walking all the way through the 14 stations from condemnation to Calvary. But I will not enter into this into details. But the upright beams, of course, were usually permanently fixed in a visible dominant location outside the city walls. This is where they crucified people. Beside a major road, this shows the Jews, if you stand against Rome, this is what will be done to you. This is what you deserve. It is likely that on many occasions, Jesus passed by the very sight every time he came to Jerusalem. He saw it. He knew he would hang upon a cross. When his time will come, he knew it. When Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That was in Matthew 16, 24. This is exactly the scene he had in mind. Everyone knew what the cross was, a harsh instrument of death and only death. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions and spiritual feelings. 
like people think today. The cross was a way to execute people. How would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return. Carrying the cross means we should die daily from our flesh and walk in the Spirit, walk with God. To be honest with you, to be a strong Christian, it is very, very hard. But it brings full joy and content because you are walking in the Spirit and the calling of your life. And we should carry our cross daily and kill our flesh and walk in the Spirit because of doing God's will, not our will, but the Father's will in our lives. It is all about the Father and not about us. I encourage you to carry the cross in your life every day, not only on Sunday, not only in church, but at your work, at your home, among your family and friends and everywhere you go and walk under the anointing of the Spirit. This is when you will do the will of the Father in your life. Even if it's hard, endure, stay righteous and be silent. Don't fight for yourself. The Lord himself, the Spirit of the Lord, will fight for you and bring justice to the situation you pass through. So remember this. Jesus has done it all for us on the cross. He saved us from sin and brought us to be citizens in his kingdom to walk in the spirit.